Good evening, everyone. Um, if I have, if I can have your attention, I have a very, very important announcement to make. A very important announcement to make. Seventh inning, Astros four, Yankees nothing. <laughs> I I am so amazed to see you here tonight. Uh, that that is very gratifying to me, and we we have somebody that can, when the game is over, will interrupt and give us the, the final score. Is that okay, Marty? If he, you've been checking yourself? So, so, so we could just not worry about it. We can put our stands out because David, David's watching it on behalf of the whole group. When the game is over, last pitch, announcement. You raise your hand and Marty will call on you immediately. <laughs> well, well, we need to know if we're going to grieve about it or not, so you can go either way. Uh, this, a couple, couple things before we uh, introduce the speaker for tonight. Uh, again, uh, you, you, were, you had a card with tonight's packet. Uh, if, uh, I encourage you, as, as Marty goes through sharing with us, uh, her, her part of the talk that, that if you have a question that you write them down and, and at the end of her presentation uh, we'll pick those up and then she can uh, respond to your cards uh, respond to your questions um, I do also want to uh, share with you that, that uh, we have an um, adult discipleship team at the church, and uh, I want to give credit to those who have uh, worked hard to put this together. Uh, Nedra Oyen is uh, not here tonight because she has, a, it was an aunt or cousin, she has a family member who was ill in California, is that right? Anyway, she's in California with family. Otherwise, she would have come to these events. She had, uh, she had uh, signed up for it and everything. Uh, Jim Pratt has been very involved in this, uh, working on it. And he's responsible for bringing the person, the lawyer, who's coming next week. Um, and then uh, Martha Hansen uh, is, uh, is located uh, Marty Nelson to be able to, uh, to be our speaker for tonight. And... The, those, those three, uh, along uh, with yours truly, uh, have been really anticipating this for more than half a year, more than half a year. And uh, your attendance is gratifying to us because, for two reasons. One is it, is it means that it, it multiplies the, the value of the time that we've put on making this uh, happen, but also means that this is indeed uh, what confirms what we felt is the truth that this is a, <clears throat> a very, very important and timely uh, topic and concern and point of conversation. And uh, so I hope that, that you have uh, benefited from this and that, uh, but I especially hope that 
this will lead to some of those conversations that, that will uh, be beneficial and enriching to you and your family. Um, <coughs> I, I wonder, uh, uh, before I ask Mar Martha to come up and introduce Marty, uh, Marty Verschel, would you uh, offer a prayer for us as we get started tonight? Okay. Yes. Uh, Mar Marty kind of scared me because it reminded me of the of the uh, preacher right out of seminary who went moved to Arkansas and uh, they asked him to offer the opening prayer. Do what? Yeah, well, not to this group. So they ask you to pray at the beginning of the football game, and his prayer was simply this, Lord, make it possible for the home team to win. Amen. They didn't ask him to pray again after that. Martha, would you come and share some words? Yeah, get some control. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled to be able to introduce Marty Nelson. Uh, she is a licensed clinical social worker and the director of bereavement services for Houston Hospice. She has over 23 years of experience working with people who are dying in their families, working with um, grief support groups and resources for those groups. Her um, experience is even more specific than that in that she has helped to develop a program at Houston Hospice for pediatric hospice care. So you can, from those brief descriptions of her work, you, I hope, can get a sense that her experience and her knowledge is wide and it's deep and it's centered in her heart. And we are so pleased that she is here to make a presentation for us she um, has made many presentations like this in the Methodist, um, in the Med Center, at MD Anderson, at St. Luke's, at Methodist. She has made presentations to church groups like this, including her own church, in her own church, which is St. Paul's United Methodist. And um, she's also made similar presentations to various school districts. I believe Klein and Humble and HISD and ALEAF. So her experience is, is quite varied, and we're just thrilled. And, and she, as, as we have visited, I have the sense that she's very, very open to an, an interactive kind of experience here. While she has a very specific presentation to make, she is going to be more than happy to answer your questions or to address any kind of concerns that you have. So I hope you'll join me in welcoming Marty.
while Marty's coming up, I'll reiterate what Martha's saying about the interactiveness. Uh, Matt has a microphone in the back. I have a microphone. And if you have an occasion where you're going to ask a question or make a comment, uh, would you please raise your hand so we can bring a microphone to you? That helps with the podcast, but also helps so that everyone here uh, can hear what you have to say. Thank you, Marty. First thing, I don't have a twitch. I have never had this on my ear before, so I was like, ugh. And um, it's really curious. We wanted to make it easy for you tonight. I answer to Martha, which is the given name, and to Marty. So, you know, either one works. You don't have to worry about remembering a name. When Martha called, gosh, in June, maybe, um, if I would be willing to do this, I was really impressed at the depth of what you all were doing here. And then when we talked a couple weeks ago and she said, well, yeah, there were about 100 people the first night. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> so um, I am honored to be here. And... As Martha said, I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been with Houston Hospice particularly for over 20 years, uh, and that's a long time. And I want to start everything I say tonight by just acknowledging that the accumulation of years have been a time filled with great joy a great deal of life, moments of sadness, and everything else in between. But it is work that is life-renewing, and it fills me up. And I like nothing better than to talk with folks who are dying, or as I say, as Director of Bereavement Services, my sad people. It is a gift to be able to be present to someone who's grieving. Tonight, I'm going to touch on several topics. My notes, after Martha and I talked, were like really long. It's like, oh my, this is going to be interesting to put together. Because of that, I'm going to actually use my paper because it will maybe help keep me on track. We're going to talk a little bit about hospice and what it is. We're going to talk some about grief and loss and how it is and why it is that we grieve. We'll talk some about how to talk to somebody who is dying. The role that the, the nature of the death and the relationship has, uh, the kind of impact it has on the grief process. And um, I'm going to end with some information um, by a grief theorist. I'm looking at your face and I know you. Do I know you? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think so. It's like, okay, now it's like, so if I go off, like, I'm trying to figure it out. Um, we'll talk some about William, William Warden and his four tasks in mourning. Um, it's lovely that there's a clock there. I'm going to do my best so that we can have time for questions. And I want to... Um, I want to acknowledge that these conversations, this information can stir things up for folks. 
And if I am talking about something that you just don't, for whatever reason in this moment, want to hear about, it is okay to walk out however you get out of here. I think it's that away. Um, make sure you take care of yourself. That's really important. And I'm going to ask that Martha, and Marty doesn't know this, or Marty follows you just to check in, make sure you're okay, and then they'll come back. Um, because then if they do that, then I'm okay knowing that everybody's okay. So take care of yourself. Um, earlier in this series, you had a doctor who talked about hospice care and palliative care. So you got some information about hospice. And I know you have cards attached. If you have specific hospice questions, write them down, and I will do my best to answer them. My, um, what I want you to know about hospice is that it is a part of this. We have prenatal care. We have pediatricians, we have internists. Then we get a little older and we have some specialists. I have several of those in my back pocket now. And then there's hospice care. It's a part of the continuum of care. And it is a very important part. I have a bias um, or I wouldn't be doing this work. I think to make the acknowledgement that when a disease process is so big that it can't be cured anymore. It's really important to look up at those things. What do we do to keep you comfortable? And to support you and your family in acknowledging that the end of life is coming. The, um, it gets tricky sometimes because we, directionally, I think, the Texas Medical Center is that way? Yeah, um, and we have that there. And there are some great facilities there. And the mindset for a lot of folks is that this can get fixed, we can cure this. And I am here to tell you that not everything gets fixed and not everything is cured. And we do have a pediatric hospice program. We uh, especially have kids who are born with genetic issues, just anomalies that mean that their life will be shorter. And for them to be supported in that and receive the care they need is really important. I was telling Martha as we were sitting here, and yesterday, I was sitting with a team, and we were talking about a 102-year-old. So it's like hospice itself covers from that newborn to however old somebody gets to be. We don't grow them that old in my family, not near that old. Um, but to have the care there is really um, important. Sometimes doctors don't initiate that conversation. You know, you, you're with somebody who's going back and forth to the hospital. It's like, you know, is this going to get better? Is this going to get fixed? It is okay to directly, hey, doc, is it time for hospice to bring that conversation up? 
and this is particularly true if you're seeing just a steady decline in someone's physical well-being and just how they're doing with their medical care. And it's important to remember that it's a part of this. If you broke your leg, you would go to an orthopedist. You wouldn't go to your internist. Well, if, if your life is getting shorter, you want to use hospice care, not the internist, not the pediatrician. On July 1st, I got a phone call from my brother saying that they had found an inoperable tumor in his right lung and around it. Um, and my immediate response was to say, I'm on my way. He lived in Michigan at the time. And his response was, no, I'm going to need you later. And we talked every day for a week. And when I heard that he was, had gone in six days later for his second lung tap in less than a week, I was like, I'm coming and I'm coming now. And um, he, some of our conversations in that week's time period, he was asking me about hospice because he knows what I do and we have talked about it in the past. However, what he said to his children is, Marty's talking to me about hospice. <laughs> My precious niece, when I first saw her, she was like glaring at me, and it was like, what's going on, Kara? You're talking to my dad about hospice, and he's going to beat this. And it was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. He didn't tell you that he asked me about hospice. So that is an example of how easy it is for the communication to just get derailed from the very beginning. And also, it's that, that bit of information. It is so important for the person who is the patient to sort of be in charge. If he wanted to ask me about hospice care, I was going to talk to him about what hospice looked like. His first question was, and his second question, and his third question, and his fourth question was, they will give me drugs and they will take me out of this, right? And I said, no. And um, that is the first myth about hospice care, um, that hospice kills people. It doesn't. We, um, we do what we do in order to... I've already messed my papers up. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Um, hospice care does nothing to lengthen a life, but it doesn't do anything to shorten a life. And it's real important to remember that. And he was insistent, no, they're going to end this for me. And I was like, no, Bear, they're not going to end this for you. And... Um, Hospice did get in, but only for a very short amount of time. And his disease process ended his life. 
So I gotta find this because I don't remember my myths in my own head. Yes, I can, I can do that. Um, there will be a stack of these and on this one part, it's like indicators that when hospice care can be called in. And that's, I brought this specifically because of that piece, just to give you a little idea of what you're looking for as far as when it's time to call hospice in. It's the paper clips. And Another myth about hospice is it's that place you go to die. Uh, hospice is not a place, it's a philosophy of care. We, Houston Hospice currently has a census of about 190 patients. 14 of them are in our inpatient unit. All the rest are in their home setting. And home can be the actual home a nursing home, a personal care home, wherever it is that somebody lives and family then acts as caregivers. So it's not that it's a place to go. Another myth is that all hospices are the same. They're not. Um, I've worked for three and that the first two were while I was waiting for a position to open up at Houston Hospice. Ask about their volunteer program. Ask them how long they have been in existence. Um, are they a for-profit and not-for-profit? It changes the outlook of how the agency itself, how they use their monies how they handle the care. And in a not-for-profit, at least the one I work for, um, everything goes back into patient and family care. We, we have dedicated bereavement staff, not all hospices do. And it is, um, it's just a difference in mindset. So just ask the questions so that you can know um, what it is you're looking at. And probably one of the most important myths is the idea that if you choose hospice, you're giving up hope. And one of the beauties of hospice, you know how I started and talked about, I find it a very life-affirming work, um, is that we help patients and families come up with new hopes. And my, uh, my brother's kids are an example of that. Initially, they were like, no, you're gonna fight this dad. And what they came to was, yes, we're gonna keep you comfortable, dad. And yes, we're gonna be here with you. We're gonna figure out how to do this with you. And so that's a very different approach than the we're gonna fight this dad. And they were gonna fight. Um, and they, to this day, are saying things like, how did you know? And it's like, well, because I have 23 years of experience that you don't have. Um, and so to, but to support a family, is it me? 
Okay. Thank you. Okay. And it's real important to know that there can be different hopes. I have worked with um, folks. It went from I want to walk down, I want to walk my daughter down the aisle to how can I conserve enough energy that I can be in the wheelchair and I can be there and I can get pushed there. Um, <laughs> am I going to blow up? <laughs> it's the Astros. I know it is. Another home run. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I won't worry about it. Um, and, and it's those, it's just helping folks see that there can be life beyond working for a cure, uh, to fix something and to get over it and what that life might look like. And as I was talking about the continu continuum of care and that acknowledgement that you really do want to use a hospice doc at the end of life because they're the ones with that expertise to address those symptoms, those issues that can come up as a body is no longer functioning in its normal way. Um, and you, if you want to keep your own doctor, you can. Some people think they have to give their doc up and they don't have to. So that's another one of those misnomers out there. Um, before I shift gears a little bit, any questions specific to hospice? We'll do it that way. That is a great question. Um, the answer is yes. You can call hospice. Your doctor can call hospice. Um, your minister can call hospice. Your friend can call your, yeah. Um, anybody can initiate that conversation in terms of, will you come out and assess and, and is my loved one hospice appropriate? We do at eventually have to have a doctor's approval, but the agency can do that with the, with the hospice. You talked about selecting a hospice, whether it's for-profit or not. How do we get information on which hospice is or is not for-profit? My experience, they just come in, but we need to call in hospice and here's the number. Um, Facilities are required to let you choose the hospice you want. And some, like nursing homes, have contracts with certain people and that's what they give you. You can always ask, like if you happen to know that Houston Hospice is a not-for-profit, you can say, I want a one-time contract with them. And you can ask your doctor, whoever the doctor is involved in say, I want the referral to go to Houston Hospice, or whoever it is. If you have a family member who works for one of the other ones and you want them to be the one to provide care, you can ask for it. And then what, what will happen is an admission nurse will come out, and that's when you ask. So are you for profit, not for profit? 
Do you have a good volunteer base? What, you know, what are your services going to be? Do you have a bereavement program? And you're, they're interviewing you and assessing the patient, but you're also interviewing them. Does that help? What's the criteria for entering hospice? Uh, it's the, when I got dressed this morning, I was, it's like, okay, I'm going to do my black and white thing because there's very little about hospice that's black and white. That is one piece that is. The disease, if it, keyword if, if the disease that is the hospice appropriate diagnosis will cause death in six months or less, that meets the criteria for hospice. And when somebody gets on hospice care and they don't die in six months, they don't get kicked off if there is a progression of the disease process. And we graduate folks because they come on, it looks like they're going really down and all of a sudden they come back up here and they're functioning and they're going and they're going. And they, they really no longer meet that criteria of that disease looking like it will be the cause of death in six months or less. If another disease happens that is treatable during the process, then you do treat that? It's a, yes. The, the best example is if you're on hospice care and you fall down and you break a bone, you go and get that bone taken care of. And dependent upon what your insurance is and what the hospital wants to do, sometimes people go off service for that treatment, but then they come right back on when they're back home. But yes. Or some folks will start service under this disease, and it changes. Okay. That disease, something shifts, or something else comes up that is also terminal, and you can have two terminal diagnoses at the same time. Marty. Yes. What levels of credentials are required for the staff, and what is each level responsible for? <laughs> you are right, Marty. They're tough. They're tough. I don't think you'd like my preaching. Um, there's also going to be this pamphlet available. And it talks about the kinds of care. Um, it doesn't talk about, never mind what I was going to say. Um, nurse, we have RN nurses. Um, we, all of our docs are, and I don't remember what the, what the letters are that go with it, but they are hospice certified doctors. That's, that's our choice. That's not a regulation. That's who we have hired um, or who work for us. 
They are, the hospice doc is ordering the meds, is looking at the symptoms. They are, um, our docs make one initial assessment and then particularly when Medicare is involved, sometimes they have to go back out and eyes on reassess appropriateness. But our docs are the ones who are ordering meds, helping, they're directing the symptom control. Our social workers are LMSW or higher, except for in the areas where we're lucky if we can find an LBSW, and that's just a bachelor's level social worker. Um, but they are all well-trained and versed in hospice care. We ha our chaplains are all ordained ministers. Um, we have several different flavors of ordination right now. Um, but they show up in the home as spiritual care, not really religious per se, but looking at the spiritual issues. Our volunteers go through 30 some hours of training and then do regular trainings once a year following that. Who have I left off of the team? Um, so we have the nurse, the chaplain, the social worker, and our, we, all of our home health aides are certified home, certified nursing assistants. And, um, and the family gets to put together what of those they want. You have to see the nurse at least once every two weeks. You have to, or uh, that's a Medicare regulation. Um, and they direct, that's our, that's our top model of regs. Did that answer your question? Okay. What response are you looking for when you ask the question, do you have a good volunteer base? Um, you want to know, you want them to immediately say, oh yeah, we have 225 active volunteers. Our volunteers do blah, 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 blah. You, you want them to know that they have volunteers and you want them to be able to tell you what the volunteers can do. If they sort of, uh, uh, it means their volunteer program isn't real strong. And another Medicare reg is that we have to, 5% of our hours, direct patient support, family support, has to come from volunteers. It takes a lot of volunteers to do that. Um, so I guess to going back to what you were just saying um, before this last question in regards to what I know you were saying what Houston Hospice has as their minimum requirement, but what 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 is the standard across the state? Or there's is there there's state regulations that require hospice to have something, or, or do there's like a national way? And how do we get that information? when we're making a decision about hospice. You would, you would Google reg, hospice care regs. <coughs> there, are, there are state regs, and, but the big regs are at the national level. And those regs are what every hospice has to function under. And the hope is that they do. Yeah, I have a question, and it's less about legality 
you were speaking of the legality for the hospice to qualify so you could get Medicare or, or insurance benefits. My question is for the family and the patient, what are the standards since, uh, or one of the criteria, since everybody is different, either the tolerance of pain, the level of depression, uh, uh, the letter level of activity that's still available to that person. Those are the things that have to be decided probably before they ever talk to a person hospice. And I thought that might be addressed. In, um, I'm not sure I understand. We meet folks where they are. Before I ever go to you. Right. with ministers, counselors, family, and what are those criteria? Okay, gotcha. Um, that is certainly the hope that those conversations occur. Um, I will tell you the majority of the time they don't. It's very often driven from the doctor who is the major treater in whatever the disease process is. So if, you, if somebody has lung cancer and they're someplace in the Houston area being treated for lung cancer and the treatments aren't working and they're getting sicker and they're not tolerating the treatments or the tumors are growing, the doctor starts those conversations. Some families talk with their families. Some folks don't. I cannot tell you how many homes I have gone into where I'm talking to the patient and the patient is like, shh, don't tell my adult children, but I'm gonna die. Those adult children are out here in the living room going, shh, don't tell mama she's gonna die. You know, and so they're coming at it like this. And part of what we do is, you know, they know, is it okay if we tell them that you know? And how about if we help you all have that conversation? Some folks include their ministers. Some folks don't. I'm gonna let this be the last question for this phase and you can go forward then. Okay. Is there a means-based acceptance program to get into a hospice? I don't know for everybody, but there shouldn't be. Um, Medicare pays for hospice. Most private insurances do. Medicare does. And past, past that level, though. And past that level, we do a financial assessment on folks. <coughs> and um, what I can tell you is, dependent on how many folks we have on service who are unfunded and not able to pay. We do have to cap it or we couldn't provide services anymore, but it's not, it's not based on how much they would be able to pay us. It's more, if, if we have room for it, then they just come on service with us. And I can't answer for anybody else, because I don't know. Thank you. Um, and what I'm hearing is there are still lots of questions here about hospice.
So we'll keep going. Well, you're going to be comfortable. But you might also, because of the... Uh-huh. It means that you and your family know this whole team of people who are coming in. And that when things do change, you trust them, you know them, they become like a part of the family, and there is emotional and psychological and spiritual support in that process. Um, he wanted to know if, if you feel like you have the support in your family and you can stand the pain, um, and there was a third piece in there. Laugh at jokes, laugh at jokes. Then I don't call you. The, the benefits at the early stage might actually be for the family. It gives them somebody to sort of catch up with where you are. And I will tell you, we had a really fun night with my brother who could do an Irish brogue like nobody. And he sort of sat up in his chair and he entertained us with jokes while he was on hospice care. And it was one of the best moments of that experience for us That's and it's a personal thing you have to know it's there it's it's the gray that you're talking about The other piece is that if, as the patient, all of a sudden you wake up with horrible diarrhea at 2 o'clock in the morning, you don't have to go anyplace. The nurse will come to you. And, it, and you are going to have emergency medicines in your house for those symptoms. So within an hour, two hours, it's going to be treated instead of having to go and get someplace. So there is medical care available 24-7. Would, would it be fair to say that the chief difference is being proactive rather than reactive? That is, that you have a system in place where you can handle things as they arise rather than waiting for things to deteriorate to the point where you're just yeah. reacting to it. That's, yeah. I think yeah. that's the... 
That's that's a very good way of saying it. And and I think that that this last question about the inner the fan probably leads you into the next topic. That is a good segue. Yep. And talking to somebody who's dying. Everybody here comfortable doing that? Who's comfortable? Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not very many of us. And it's, um, it can be a awkward process. The biggest thing that you can do is listen and be a presence. And then you take your lead from them. Let them direct the conversation. And go with them. And they're going to let you know real fast whether or not they want to talk about the fact they're dying. And if they don't want to talk about it, don't push it because it doesn't work. And it's real important to know that uh, by the time hospice is involved, it's not going to be very helpful to say, well, have you tried blah, blah, blah? Because they have tried everything they can try. And you may have had experience with somebody. We run into this all the time. Well, my neighbor's uncle did blah, 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 and they were okay. Total different kind of cancer. And again, for the, for the family who has made that shift from we're going to cure this to let's keep you comfortable, to have those kind of comments come, it's actually detrimental. It's not helpful. And it's real important in sitting with, being with, talking to folks to not judge how they're doing it. If you want to do it, you know, um, we have some rural folks, and um, we had a guy who was like, I'm sitting in my chair under the carport. Uh, this is, I, I just want to sit outside. And so our, during the daytime, he was outside as much as he could possibly be, and that was okay. You let folks do it how they want to do it. Do your homework. So if you're going to see somebody or if you know somebody, get some information just about how they are and what's going on with them so that you can have that and ask if you have questions about the disease process. Um, If you're sitting with somebody actually as a caregiver, make sure you understand what the meds are, how they need to be delivered, what you're going to be doing, what is my role here today, so that you can exude a little bit of confidence as you're supporting folks. It's real important to make sure you don't use the words, I know just how you feel, um, because you don't. You may have been with somebody else and you know how they felt, but you don't know how this person felt. And certainly, how are you feeling today? What do you need today? How about if I sit with you here? If you feel like talking, let me know. (coughs) And then, um, 
Then there's the, um, there's the you shoulds. Well, you should just fill in the blank. If you hear a you should come out, just suck it back. It's like, oops, I don't know what you should do. You know, I, I make a joke out of it because I don't begin to know. I, half the time, I don't even know what I should be doing, let, know, let alone what somebody else should be doing. And you can encourage folks talking, you know, tell me more. What I hear is. And kindness and compassion are seldom wrong. It's that gift of presence. It's being willing to be there. <clears throat> and in family, um, the conversations that can happen one-on-one -on -one or in the whole can be really, really rich. Real rich. Because I spent a week um, as my brother's primary caregiver before his kids came into the house, we had a whole lot of conversations and they were pretty much at three o'clock in the morning when he was really scared. And we talked about old childhood stuff and we resolved some old business that we hadn't resolved yet. And you know, it was one of the first things I flew to Michigan knowing it's like, if I don't get anything else said, I need to say this to my brother. And, you know, it was, hey, Bear, can I talk to you about something? And he was like, yeah. And so we had this sweet, short conversation, and essentially he didn't even remember it. So, but I felt better for the conversation. And we also, in the middle of the night, was when he could talk about how scared he was. And I didn't change it because the next night it was the same conversation, but he had a place to just say those words out loud. And I barely said anything, um, and except for, I hear you're really scared. And then he could, yeah, and one night it was about a son who has some issues and what's he gonna do because I've always been here for him. So we talked about that. He another time asked me very specifically, it's like, are you still gonna be here for my kids? And I was like, of course, I love them. And um, we had a conversation about his ex-wife. Do I tell her, do I tell her that I'm sick? And my immediate response was, no, she doesn't deserve it. <laughs> and he cracked up. And, and then we both looked at her and, and said at the same time, that's actually wrong. Do you want her to know? And he said, yes. And so he then had that conversation with her. And they spent some time, and it wasn't a long time, but actually the day after that conversation, they spent an hour talking to each other with a whole lot of tears. But the healing was huge for both of them. They were able to say things that they hadn't been able to say yet. So it's, those, you know, they're hard conversations. They're not easy. 
It takes some time of going inward. What do I want to say? What do I need to say? And then just being willing to say, hey, Bear, can I talk to you about this? And going for it. And it's the thank yous. It's the I love yous. It's the I'm really going to miss this about you. And you say it. You say it out loud. I'm really going to miss this about you. Because what that does is it lets that person know that their life has had meaning. And that's what this is about. It is easier to die if you know that your life is whole. If there are huge holes in it, and if you don't know it made a difference, it's harder to let go. And then there are the regrets. And to speak them means that folks who are surviving don't six months, eight months down the road have to go, oh, shoot, I wish I had said that. So we talk a lot. Our staff talks a lot with patients and families. What do you need to say? What do you want your family to know before you die? And what do you want your father, mother, brother to know before he dies? And that is a gift to the grieving person on down the road because it's a whole lot easier when you're not beating yourself up about something left unsaid. My, um, my kids, years ago, I would, when a, a, when a close patient had died, I would call them. And, and I would just say, I just wanted to say I love you. And my son, finally, uh, he w his response became, who died today, Mom? <laughs> and it was like, ooh, yeah. It's about keeping your business current. So those conversations that are hard with somebody who is dying can be just as hard for a couple sitting at one of these tables or a parent and an adult child or a parent and a young child. It is really important to keep your business current. And if you practice while everybody's healthy, it's a whole lot easier than if somebody gets sick. And it's those things that we all as human beings need and want. It's the kindness, it's the compassion, the I love yous, the thank yous, the oh, I'm sorry, and great job today. I really like when you do that. I'm going to be like everybody else. So when am I supposed to be done? <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. So um, now I'm going to talk about grief. And this is where it's really hard for me because I love it. If you don't take anything else home with you tonight, I want you to take this. And that is that grief is the normal response to loss. It is normal as human beings to grieve. We are born hardwired to connect 
and to establish connection with people and to get attached to them. Ever seen a six-month-old baby when somebody tried to peel it away from their primary caregiver, kicking and screaming? Well, whether we like to admit it or not as adults, it's the same thing. We don't like it when somebody we love dies, goes away from us. And that's because we are hardwired to do this. So grief is the normal response to loss. Everybody say it. Grief is the normal response to loss. Okay. Thank you. If you can remember that grief is normal, you can allow it to happen. And you don't have to try to fix it or change it. You can just let yourself feel it. And how we feel grief is very much based on the circumstances of the death and the nature of the relationship of the person that died. I grew up knowing that my grandparents would die. And they did when I was a kid. Um, but it was like they were my grandparents. And I was sad for a little while. Um, and then I was just back and doing my stuff. Fast forward 20 years, and my parents died. And it was like, whoa, this is a little bit closer. And still, it was my parents. And so there's a level of expectation there. I have not had a child die, but that's not right. It is totally topsy-turvy. It is upside down. It's not what we expect. It's not the way the world works. And so when a child gets sick and a child dies, it, it's harder. It just throws everything out of order and upside down. As does if death is from an act of violence. Um, the brain has to first take in that uh, something horrific has happened. And then it has to take in the, the reality. And when a death happens and it's totally unexpected, it takes so much longer for it to sink in. Um, you know, if there's a car accident, um, if somebody dies in a flood, and what I'm going to be saying is also applicable, how many in here have lost a home in the last month and a half. Any major flooding? Wow. Because I will say that we all have been impacted by Harvey. There were streets that I didn't even want to drive down because it looked like a war zone. My house was okay, but I wasn't okay. And I have friends who weren't okay. So the nature of the loss has an impact on how we process it, how we feel it. Um, if there's a suicide, um, it is so hard to take that in and to take it in without, I should have known, I should have seen, I should have stopped it. Um, it doesn't work that way. 
Somebody who wants to complete suicide, um, they're going to do it. You can listen for signs, but lots of times they're not there. And you can't take it on as something that you should have stopped. In grief, there are no magic words. I have new clients come into me on a regular basis for one-on-one -on -one counseling, and every single time I'm like, ooh, they're going to want me to fix this. Um, and there's no magic. There are no magic words. There's no magic wand. Um, we have this adage that, you know, um, it'll be better with time. Time isn't, time's, time by itself doesn't do it. You have to be willing to talk about the grief, feel the grief, feel the feelings, so that you can move to a different place with it. And time itself is not the answer. And not everybody is able to sit and be with people sad. Because uh, our culture is pretty much grief denying. So if you come back to work after somebody has died and you have tears in your eyes three weeks later, it's very possible that somebody's going to say, aren't you over this yet? And the reality is absolutely not. Grief is not a one-time thing. It is a process that goes and goes and goes, and it goes for as long as it needs to go. And some of how long it needs to go goes right back to the nature of the death, what the relationship was, the circumstances around the death. Because the more traumatic, the longer it takes. And when you are with somebody who's grieving, it's another one of those really good times to remember not to say, I know how you feel. I know lots of folks who have had a mother die, but it wasn't my mother. So I don't know how they feel. I know what I felt like when my mother died, but I'm not them. So it's real tricky, and certain there's a huge difference in, I remember what it was like for me when my mom died. I remember that. But that's real different than I know exactly what you're feeling because we can't know what somebody else is feeling. I have a question. Surprise. Um, <clears throat> how many of you have heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? She did some research a while ago with patients who were terminally ill and came up with the five stages of grief. It was very much feeling-related. And our culture took those and just sort of smeared them on the general population and most of us, at least for a period of time, believe that that's how people grieve. Actually, her work was all about terminally ill patients, and she did a lovely job of starting the conversation. But 
if I was to have somebody die today, her stages of grief would not be applicable to me because they are for somebody who is dying. And that's even, there's just conversation in grief theorist world about whether they're even applicable to the dying patient. Baseball game, is that, what, what? Um, and, and it's important to remember that because you, people get tripped up on, oh, I'm in this stage and I only have this stage left to do, um, and grief does not work like that, totally does not work like that. The piece that we use to talk to folks and counsel folks about is William Warden's Fortas Some Morning, and someplace you're going to have a piece of paper that looks like this. You don't have to take it out. I'm just going to talk, and, but that's for you so you can have and remember. <coughs> if you want to take notes, you can. And um, hmm. I was going to use my car keys, but so I have my car keys in my hand here. <coughs> William Morden, um, a number of years ago, developed these four tasks in morning. And the first task is to take, to just accept and take in the reality that this loss has occurred. It takes way longer than anybody thinks it's going to take or that it should take. <coughs> and <coughs> I often talk about this by talking about the... Um, I was going to a CEU class, and I had all, all this stuff in my car. I was going to be on time. I have to have CEUs so I can wear this badge. I'm a procrastinator. It was the month before they were due. Saturday morning, lunch is in the car. I am good to go, and I shut the car door. And the keys were on the front seat. And it's like, oh, surely the door's unlocked. So I pulled on the door handle, and the door was not unlocked. It was locked. So I went to the back seat, and oh, yeah, it was locked. And I walked around the back of the car, and that door was locked. So I went to the driver's door, and it's like, surely this door is going to open. And I pulled on it, and it was locked. And I walked around the front of the car and stood looking in that passenger side in the window. I could see the keys on the car seat. Guess what I did? I, yes, I pulled all four door handles again. I, my brain couldn't quite get that they really were locked in the car. I'm looking at the keys in the car, and I'm pulling that door handle a second time. That's for a set of car keys. Imagine how long it takes to take in the full reality that somebody has died, that they're gone, that that, what they meant to you. For, you know, the car keys were, I'm going to this seminar. Um, no, I'm not going now. And... I, but when somebody dies, it takes, well, we follow folks for 13 months because we want to make sure everybody has had that first October 17th, 
under their belts before we go away. Or that first whatever, the first birthday, the first anniversary, the first Thanksgiving, the first Christmas. For some folks, it's the first Halloween, um, the first Hanukkah. So it takes longer to absorb all of that than most of us are willing to take the time to do. The second task, according to Warden, is to feel all the feelings associated with the loss. So not one of my finer moments. I had a temper tantrum in my driveway. It included kicking a car tire, and I am not making this up. This is a true story. You know, I I was frustrated. I was mad at myself. And I was concerned because I knew I needed the CEU, so I was worried, and it's like it brought all my licensure up, and it's like I was a mess, including tears. And and I just, I couldn't do anything but stand beside my car and just let all of this wash over me. Again, that's keys locked in a car when CEUs are on the line. And... So, how many of you have had somebody die? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the feelings that you have felt with that? Numb? Helplessness? Guilt? Yes. Denial? Anger? Any sadness? Yeah. Uh, Lots of our folks, the first time I talk to them, it's like, oh, I'm so relieved they're not suffering anymore. And that is a huge gift, and they really mean it when they say it. I'm so glad that they are no longer physically suffering. Those same folks, three or four months later, will call me. It's like, my goodness, Marty, what is wrong with me? How could I have felt relieved? I feel so guilty. So one feeling can lead to the next, to the next. And it takes a while to sort it all out. And if you don't allow yourself to feel all that, you're just carrying it around with you because it doesn't go away on its own. So it's real important to feel those feelings. So as I'm having my little temper tantrum in the driveway, my neighbor walks outside and sort of stands on the porch and, hi, Marty, what's going on? It's like, Mary. <laughs> and I said, I locked the keys in the car. And, you know, she looked at me and she's like, well, let's call the locksmith. And I was like, what a brilliant idea. I didn't know you were so smart. Um, <laughs> I, I was so caught up that that's where I was. Warden's third task is to adjust to the environment without this person. So you have to make some changes. If somebody dies, there's holes left. Who's going to do what they used to do? And in this case, it was like, yeah, I need some help here. And so we called the locksmith, and it was going to take over an hour. And I'm like, I'm just seeing the bunny and the CEUs go down the drain. So I then 
took a whole step back into the reality is I've lost my CEUs to, oh man, what am I going to do about my CEUs and a whole nother wave of feeling, including now that I'm talking to the locksmith and it's like, well, yeah, I'll come anyway. It was a good day. He was there in 10 minutes. And in the amount of time it took me to walk around the side of the car to where he was, he already had the car open. It was scary. I, it was like, <laughs> I need to learn how to do this. But I was amazed at how quickly he did that. Um, and so I got the keys and paid the money. But So I had the keys back. But then I had this whole new dilemma. It's like, well, I'm going to be late. CEUs, you have to sign in at the beginning. You have to be there the whole time or you don't get them. Do I go? Which took me right back to, man, I've really lost these CEUs. The feelings at that point, it's like, what am I going to do? And then I decided that I've paid the money. I might as well go try. So... I chose to go, and lo and behold, they'd had technical problems, and I showed up just as the computers were working. <laughs> so I got my CEUs. Um, yes, it was, um, you know, and all of that was in, I don't know, a 45-minute time period. And it is the, the funny story about how it is that we make adjustments when there's a loss. My dad died in the month of May, and he had dementia, and he was pretty sad character, so when he died, my siblings and I were all relieved. I mean, that was it. And that was the feeling, you know, a little bit of sadness, but I was so glad that he wasn't doing that anymore. And um, the following November, knowing that he had died, I was like, I need Graham's ambrosia salad for my Thanksgiving dinner. So the day before Thanksgiving, I'm going into the grocery store because I have three things left for Graham's ambrosia salad, which are going to make me feel connected to all those folks up in Michigan that I'm down here and not connected to. Plus, it's going to help me just feel connected with Dad around Thanksgiving. I walk into that store, and there was a floor-to-ceiling display of poinsettias. And I lost it. In the six months since he had died, I had not thought of this once, but in my family of origin, when you grew up and left the house, our father not our father and mother, but our father sent us a poinsettia at the beginning of December. And it was like, I'm never going to have one of those again. And I walked through the grocery store saying out loud, pushing a cart, normal grief response, it's okay, as I'm <laughs> sobbing. People were looking at me and it's like, I didn't care because I still needed my grapes and my pineapple and my marshmallows because I knew that the next day I would be really happy if I had that ambrosia salad. So I just, normal grief response, and I kept going. And I went to the next island. And people, you know, it's like, I'm surprised I didn't get picked up. But it was 
it took me to a whole new level of the reality. And this is six months down the road. It's like, I will never get a poinsettia from him again. He's really gone. And this is, I, it, was, uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty incredible, and I was really sad. And I made that ambrosia salad that night because it asked to sit overnight. And I'm in my kitchen, and I'm crying and crying and crying, and it's like, it's okay. And I am so grateful that I do what I do because I knew it was okay, and I knew it was exactly what I needed to do. So I let myself cry and feel all of that. And the next day, I was much happier, and I was really happy to have the ambrosia. But then I had to make this decision about, ooh, how am I going to adapt to this new environment? I didn't want a poinsettia. It was too painful. And it took me several years before I would have a poinsettia in my house again because it was just too painful. My younger brother, his um, son, that very first year bought him one and said, I know Papa did this and I'm going to do it now. And he is my favorite nephew. Um, <laughs> My older brother and his wife, they just went out and they got their own. And my sister to this day goes out and buys one of those little itty bitty ones, one stem, a little white flower. That's all she wants and that's all she will do. And it's been 22 years. So all four of us adapted very differently to poinsettias. I love them. Bring them on. My friends know it. I buy them for myself, but it took me a while. And that's the being engaged with life. I absolutely love them now, and I want them in my life. And they just, they just give me this sweet grin. And I feel very connected to my dad when I have a poinsettia in my house, even though he, has, he died in 1995. Um, so those are the four tasks. And use the image of the keys and the humor there to help you remember. Um, you know, me pulling on those door handles a second time, it's like, really, Martha? Really? It's like, yeah, really. Um, but then also, hopefully, the image of a poinsettia can help you remember that this is a process. It is a process that takes, it takes a while. Um, I think that I'm almost ready to, I want to read to you from The Cure for Sorrow. It's by Jan Richardson. Some of you may know her. She has done a lovely devotional for Advent. Um, This one is titled, Where Your Song Begins Again. Beloved, I could not bear it if this blessing ended with the final beat of your heart. If it left with the last breath that bore you away from here. I could not stand the silence, the stillness, where all had once been sung, had been story and had been the cadenced liturgy of your life. 
So let it be that this blessing will abide in the pulse that moves us from this moment to the next. Let it be that you will breathe in us with bereft but beloved still. Let it be that you will make your home in the chamber of our heart, where your story does not cease, where your words take flesh anew, where your song begins again. And a few minutes of questions. You, you tell me. Oh, that, see, there's my brain. If you had a card, That's you want card. to pass it forward? Anybody have a card? Hmm? While you're passing your cards in, you may start your grieving now. Yankees 6, Astros 4. <laughs> yeah, the, the, what? The, Kings, the Kings messengers got their heads lopped off. I understand that. I didn't hear. What's the score? Yankees 6, Astros 4. They came from behind. Any other cards? This question is related specifically to insurance. Um, Medicare covers all the costs associated with hospice care. So the patient who has Medicare, um, Medicare covers the equipment, the medications, um, the team that comes in, and even, we don't get paid for it, but it even covers that 13 months of bereavement support from us. Medicaid, I don't know the recent changes. I'm pretty sure Medicaid covers everything. Private insurance companies sometimes have a copay, sometimes they don't. They'll have a carve out. So if you have, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, I can't think of another name of an insurance company, not Allstate. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you have to check your hospice coverage with your individual insurance company. Uh, next next week we'll have the the final uh, the final session and uh, John Fox is is the is the lawyer who will be with us next week and I look forward to seeing you all and I know that you'll want to join me in offering our thanks to Marty for being here tonight. So as you go forth into the evening, uh, may the Lord of light so lighten your pathway that you'll walk and not stumble. And may the grace of Jesus Christ be with you now and always. Amen.